Hi, welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, what happens when a retirement residence has its license revoked? A new poll says Canadian trust in the police has eroded. And the Prime Minister has extended COVID-19 emergency measures. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right. uh, The Roslyn Retirement Residence has uh, had its license revoked, uh, obviously, during the wake of COVID-19 as we are into week number 14. I had to actually look. Um, It is Tuesday, right? Uh, Week number 14. And of course, uh, what we've heard and and, and what has been going on over the last 14 weeks in uh, in long term care, nursing homes and such, uh, obviously, is uh, ground zero for this pandemic. And uh, as time goes by, we will certainly see more changes uh, being made. But what does it mean when a license actually gets revoked? Let's bring in Graham Webb, Executive Director, Advocacy Center for the Elderly, and is with us now. Graham, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, I am. Thank you, Scott. So, Graham, what happens when a license gets revoked? What does that mean? Well, that means that the operator, which had been authorized to conduct the business of a retirement home under the legislation, the Retirement Homes Act, has is no longer authorized to carry on that business. And so uh, it means that they would um, be required by law to um, uh, take steps to, to close the retirement home business. That's what we're expecting. So uh, what happens to actual ownership of that residence once this happens? Well, this doesn't affect the ownership of the residence, except that it may prompt a change in ownership. The uh, the owner and operator would still continue to own the real estate. They're the, they have the proprietary interest in it. Uh, things they could do is they could choose to uh, sell the residence to the purchaser, who might then be able to obtain a license to carry on the business of a retirement home. Uh, another thing they could do is to... Uh, uh, change the nature of the business because, uh, y- y- you know, you can carry on residential accommodation that is not a retirement home, uh, provided that the majority of the residents are not over age 65 uh, or that uh, you're not providing uh, care services. And so it's possible that in some cases for a retirement home operator to uh, do something to the way the business is operated uh, to take it outside of the operation of the Retirement Homes Act. And finally, uh, you know, the other thing that could happen is is that the, the operator could seek to um, uh, close the retirement home, but in doing that, uh, the operator is still a residential landlord, and the tenants are still residential tenants that have the right of all other tenants including the right to continue to occupy uh, their premises. And so the operator would have to go through a legal process to try to evict the tenants if that's what the operator is intending to do. But I, I think probably in this situation, we're a, a, long, a long ways from that, uh, uh, from that happening. I just don't know. I'm not, I have no firsthand knowledge of what's happening in the home, but it would be unusual for evictions to proceed right away. Uh, but as it stands now, and as a retirement home, they have no control over the operation. What does that mean for the residents? 
Well, there, I know that there was a, a management order uh, made on May 16th, uh, 2020, uh, May 15th, pardon me. I am hoping that a management company has been uh, placed to actually manage their resident manage their residents on behalf of the uh, on behalf of the owner. I don't know if that has actually happened or not because it's fairly fast breaking news and I haven't got confirmation from the RHRA. But in the meantime, I expect that the tenants are still going to be living in the Rosslyn residence. And not only that, the operator has the legal right to appeal uh, the license revocation to a tribunal. Uh, is it true? There's a lot of ground to cover. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're hearing more and more that it's there's this. It's the same sort of bad actors that keep appearing uh, uh, whenever there's a situation like this. Is there a common thread here? Are a lot of these owners the same? Is 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 there something we can learn from that? Well, I can't comment on this particular situation, uh, but I can say uh, that there are owners of retirement homes and long-term care homes that have a long history of non-compliance with regulatory oversight in Ontario. And so there are situations where we have seen uh, owners uh, run afoul of the law, for example, with long-term care homes or retirement homes or both, uh, and then uh, come back and, uh, and run afoul again uh, in, another, in another facility. Or, you know, it may be uh, that at one time they were a long-term care home operator or now a retirement operator or vice versa. So, yes, um, compare, there, are, there are repeat offenders. Compare private operators to uh, to public op- uh, operators. What's the ratio of that? And do these sort of non-compliance issues happen in more than one, uh, more one than the other? Well, I can't give you a ratio. I don't have any empirical data on that to offer. But, uh, you know, I have uh, uh, been with the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly since May 1995, so I have uh, more than 25 years of experience in dealing with retirement homes and long-term care homes. And our overall, uh, our, our overall observation is that more of the severe problems uh, generally come from, from privately run facilities. Uh, there are many, many, many excellent uh, privately owned facilities, uh, but there are also some rogue facilities or bad actors. And more often than not, when we find one that has gone completely off the rail, it is more likely than not a, a, a for-profit, a small for-profit operator. Uh, why is that? Well, for a few reasons. Um, one of it can be due to lack of uh, management expertise and training. Um, you know, large, privately owned uh, retirement homes are very well run. They invest a lot of resources into things like uh, compliance and uh, systems and measures that really go beyond what's needed for mere compliance to uh, uh, protect residents from risk of harm and all coincidentally, and not, not just coincidentally, to protect the owners from legal liabilities. Uh, sometimes we find uh, other operators who don't invest the same resources into uh, management and training. 
and um, may I say, sometimes operate a bit off the, flying off the seat of their pants. You know, we've seen, I've, I've seen uh, retirement homes burn down where the owner and operator has no prior experience in operating a retirement home. And, uh, you know, I was quite surprised when things, when things uh, didn't happen the way that they were supposed to happen. And so uh, it, it's more common for the small for for a uh, a rogue operator to be a privately owned enterprise than a publicly funded one uh are the private enterprises not more expensive and well i'll let, let you answer that first no not necessarily mm. um because you would think you know, if they're they, more expensive and private that there would be more of uh of the facilities and the personnel that's needed but not necessarily the case you're saying no, not there, there's really a wide range of um, price points for retirement home accommodation. There are many excellent operators that offer really high range accommodation, excellent services and facilities, and sometimes at a very high cost as well. And, you know, when you're hiring trained staff and actually providing services, it costs money. And if the operator happens to be a not-for-profit operator, uh, you know, not-for-profit doesn't mean cheap. But uh, there are also operators who um, will uh, operate more at the bottom end of the market and will cut some corners. And uh, these might be private operators that are they're having difficulty uh, managing. So obviously this and is something... Way, and... Go ahead. I'm sorry, Scott. I just meant to say that none of this reflects particularly on the Rosslyn home. I have no personal or professional knowledge of this particular facility and right. nothing I'm saying is 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 with respect to this particular facility. So uh, obviously with your experience here Graham uh, and everybody's looking for the answer is it public versus private is it a mixture of the bo- of the both uh, again if we're licensing these facilities um, uh, should obviously there be some sort of whether this is national, provincial? I guess really the call is now for some sort of national guideline, regulations, minimum standard uh, for these homes. Is, is will that help? Is that is that what is needed here? I don't think we need national standards. I think we we do very well with made in Ontario standards. I think that this is something that falls under provincial regulation. And I think it's uh, within the scope of the government of Ontario to regulate it. Um, one of the problems is the underfunding of actual long-term care homes, which is a, a different form of accommodation. But there are many people who uh, need admission to long-term care, but uh, really uh, are put on long wait lists. And so they need somewhere to go and they may end up going to retirement homes when really what they need is a a higher form of accommodation that has some government funding because long-term care homes are are, uh, uh, care facilities that are funded for health purposes, whereas retirement homes generally don't receive any funding. So part of the problem is overflow from long-term care into retirement homes. Another problem is uh, lack of funding generally for uh, retirement home tenants. You know, there are uh, people who uh, uh, do require retirement home care uh, that just simply can't afford it on the pension income. You know, if you look what uh, there are um, tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of older adults in Ontario who have 
the old age security pension, the uh, guaranteed income supplement, and uh, maybe very small pension incomes. And that doesn't go very far in terms of purchasing retirement home accommodation. You know, I don't think that you can afford to live in a, a really top quality retirement home based on federal income security pro- programs. And these people need financial assistance for the for the tenants, not so much for the operators. Hmm. So where do you see this going, Graham? I mean, it, it certainly has, uh, it, it appears like it's hit a tipping point. We've been talking about this for an awfully long time. We've known about this for an awfully long time. Is, is COVID-19 a turning point here for this discussion? It may be. It may be. Time will tell. You know, we've seen crisis in long-term care before. We have seen crisis in what amounts to retirement home care long before retirement homes were regulated. And looking at the history of retirement homes, we see horrid conditions uh, that were documented extensively in the 1970s. It's not a new problem. It's one that's been in the public eye for a long time, but always gets uh, pushed to the back burner. And so I think it really depends on the public, Scott, your listeners, our listeners here, to uh, think about uh, what questions they're going to ask their uh, MPPs and what pressure will they put on the government between elections and how will they vote at elections in order to uh, obtain more funding for things like home care, for uh, more and better long-term care homes, and uh, and also for resources for people needing retirement homes. We're at the brink of uh, the government asking today um, eh, with Bill 175, this before the legislature, um, to have a new category of care, which is really an unlicensed, unregulated uh, residential congregate care, which is, uh, we think, a mistake. We don't think we need more unregulated care. We think we need more funding for people who require residential care. Graham Webb has been with us, Executive Director of the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly, talking about uh, retirement residencies and what happens when licenses are revoked. Graham, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Good luck with this. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know, it's it's been interesting watching uh, how society has coped with COVID-19 in the last uh, 14 weeks or so. And then all of the other crisis, the problems that the world has uh, thrust upon itself during this period. We remember uh, the downing of the snowbird jet. Uh, we remember the, the shooting in New Brunswick. And now... The tragic death of, of George Floyd has brought more social unrest as people are start starting to question uh, 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 police enforcement and have the discussion, the larger discussion of uh, privilege and white privilege. And finally, people seem to be paying attention. And obviously due to that eight minute and 40 second, uh, 46 second video uh, that we all saw. But there's a new Leger uh, poll out that says, although per, uh, support for police and law and order generally in Canada still remains high, uh, they've seen about a 10 percent drop uh, in support uh, through all of this. To talk more about it, let's bring in Dr. Greg Brown, research professor uh, and instructor, Department of Sociology and Anthropology and Department of Law and Legal Studies at Carleton University and is with us now. Greg, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. 
Doing well, Scott. Thank you. So, uh, you know, the, the latest Leger numbers say we could see or we have seen a dip since the spring of, uh, of about 10 points. How are Canadi- uh, Canadians feeling about the police? You know, we'd always sit on this side of the border and think we were always different from the United States. How are Canadians feeling about this? Well, certainly there's been a number of localized um, interactions between the, piece, the police and public that have, uh, that have come to the public's attention. Uh, Alberta, I've done a few different uh, news programs out there. There's been a couple of controversial police use of force occurrences, of course, in New Brunswick. There's been a couple uh, over the last couple of weeks. So uh, while we do have American occurrences coming across the border seamlessly with the way our, our media landscape is designed, we also have local Canadian issues that have transcended the the localized nature that often these occurrences uh, have, and and they seem to be part of a new national conversation that the Prime Minister has involved himself uh, in, and and many of us in the academic community are are having active uh, discussions, as are uh, yourself and your colleagues in the media, looking at issues around uh, police accountability and transparency, public trust. All of these things seem to be on the table these days. If we have to keep asking if society has uh, uh, systemic racism, uh, it does not give us the answer. How often do we have to keep asking this question? Well, I think the answer has been fairly clearly established, even amongst a few people that were reluctant to to go there for whatever reason. But I think we've established that that is a fact that does occur. Uh, Certainly in policing, uh, it's not a big secret amongst uh, practitioners that systemic racism has been part of Canadian policing for as long as anyone can remember historically. What about about systematic racism within society? Are Canadians aware of that? Well, I think many are. Um, You know, I don't know if it's a topic. I haven't had a chance to, to ask any of my children who or school age, if this is a topic that's covered uh, in schools or not. But certainly the conversation seems to be alive and well, and and many of us are engaging with it. Certainly the media is is really doing a great job in facilitating these important conversations. And uh, I think certainly if some people were unaware of it, uh, it's certainly being brought to their attention today. I've had many email me and say, I'm not racist. There is no such thing as systemic racism. How, and you know, many people may not be racist, may not hold these views, but does that give them a clear picture of what systemic racism is? Well, I don't think you have to be overtly racist in practices or, or words um, to, to have racist or racialized biases. I mean, we all have a conscious level that we operate at but as i often discuss in in various forums around my my specialty which is uh, police visibility body cameras and so on and so forth there's an unconscious bias that's really baked into all of us that we're possibly not even aware of hence its unconscious uh, nature and so people often look to uh, you know in in a related sort of topic that that if we have video of a police interaction with the citizen that is some in some way an objective accounting of what happened. But of course, uh, you and I have never met, so I assume we have some differences. You know, the way you're going to watch a video is filtered through a different lens than I might watch that video because we have different life experiences. We believe in different things. We think about things from a different uh, perspective. And so we apply a different lens. Very much similar when you talk about unconscious bias in society. We all have different experiences. And so our experiences uh, are different uh, based on the individual. Uh, speaking of body cams, the more call for that now. Ninety percent of Canadians looking, uh, or sorry, agreeing with that. So, is it just a matter of time? 
I think it's just a matter of time. Um, I, you know, I think I mentioned uh, last week on your show, I feel a little bit prophetic because I wrote an article, uh, a book chapter that's coming out uh, in the fall in a Routledge publication, an international uh, sort of analysis of body cameras around the world. I wrote the Canadian piece comparing us with the United States. My prediction back then was that it was just a matter of time. And now, of course, you know, with all of these recent occurrences, uh, it really does seem like it's just a matter of time. I'm getting calls. I'm probably getting emails from the same people as you from across the country, police jurisdictions that even rejected uh, publicly body cameras for a variety of reasons, primarily cost, who have now done a complete 180 and are enthusiastically uh, looking forward to implementing body cameras. I suspect within the next 24 months, we'll see body cameras across most of Canadian policing just the same as what has happened uh, south of the border in the United States. Um, Virtually every major police service in the United States has body cameras across the front line. Is cost an excuse? Because uh, apparently it is quite an expensive endeavor. That being said, where there's a movement out there as well to defund police. So how do we, how do we balance this? Well, policing is an expensive uh, venture. Um, You know, most police officers earn earn over $100,000 a year. That's pretty much the baseline salary for a first-class constable. Uh, You know, the equipment is very expensive. Police cruisers fully kitted up, uh, you know, are over $50,000 a piece, which is something to consider when you see them being lit on fire. That's a substantial amount of tax money that's going down the drain. But, but, you know, policing is an expensive uh, endeavor. And so body cameras, comparatively speaking, in my view anyways, are relatively inexpensive. And given that, as you mentioned, and the research is consistent on this in in the Canadian context, well over 90% of the public wants body cameras. My research suggests that over 80% of frontline police officers want body cameras. It seems like everybody wants them. And and so I think we can make room in the budget to, to roll them out. If it's something that everybody is unanimously in favor of, then I think we have to make some some room for that. And my understanding, I'm not involved in the industry myself, but I liaise with people that are. The cost aspect has come down significantly just in the last couple of years. Sort of the same phenomenon we'd all appreciate with big screen TVs. You remember years ago when they first came out, you know, they cost thousands and thousands of dollars, and now you can pick one up at Costco for a couple hundred bucks. Uh, Body cameras are sort of the same thing. They've come down substantially. Uh, another piece of the Leger poll said 80%, 87% were uh, supportive of more training on minority issues within the police department. Again, is this a direction that a police, uh, police department should be going? Is this something better left to those who uh, provide these services to the community? Again, back to the defunding issue. Sure. Well, I've been advocating vociferously for, for some time for more training, and I think the public is really unaware of just exactly how little training police officers will just stay in the Ontario um, jurisdiction. That's where you're located. I'm, I'm in Ottawa, so we're both in the province of Ontario. How little training police officers actually get, considering all of the dynamic events that police are involved in and obviously the consequences that can stem from, from police conduct in terms of deterioration of public trust, civil lawsuits, all these kind of considerations. Police receive very, very little training. The Ontario Police College curriculum is 15 weeks. I was working with another professor at Carleton, George Regakos, uh, and we were looking at, at uh, a Bachelor of Policing Sciences program, a four-year university college uh, degree, similar to the UK model that's just been mandatory for all new police recruits beginning this year in, in 2020. 
to try to develop some additional training around the issue you spoke about, about racial bias and, and things like that, but delving into all aspects of the police job, and most particularly um, in an ongoing training sort of uh, model, much more training on use of force. You know, the highly controversial and tragic episodes that we witness all too frequently come from police not having the proper training to, to do their job properly in terms of use of force. If you don't practice something and you get eight hours once every 365 days, what's the odds in the moment where it really matters that you're going to perform at the standard that the public expects? And I think the answer is, is, is built into the question. It's a rhetorical uh, question. You know, we can't expect police officers to perform at a 10 out of 10, 10, 10 out of 10 level in use of force situations when they're under extreme stress if they haven't trained for that. But many are asking, many are asking right now, Greg, that, you know, and I understand what you're saying. And, you know, we certainly in Hamilton here, we've had situations where there's more liaison between mental health officers and the police. When there is a situation, they can bring someone in to help. Um, But then some are saying we're expecting the police to do too much. Uh, You know, the police can't be social workers or or hate crime investigators or cybersecurity experts or terrorism experts over and above all of this other stuff that we're asking them to do uh, beyond basic uh, policing. Yet, you know, uh, you're talking about more training and more sensitivity to certain issues. But others are saying, don't give them any of that to fund all of that and give that money to the social social services. So how can we be talking about expanding the training and again, on the other hand, saying, no, 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 defund the police, which means take all of the money away for the social uh, endeavors and put that into the, uh, the services that administer those on a daily basis. Your thoughts? Sure. I, I, guess, I guess my take on that would be um, that, that would be foolish to defund police training, because, because regardless of how we might remodel policing in terms of reforms, maybe shedding certain responsibilities that the police do today, as part of sort of the mission creep that's happened in policing over the last 50 years. Maybe we'll take police out of schools. Maybe we'll remodel how we deal with mentally ill persons that are having a crisis uh, moment. But, but, you know, we're still going to have police interactions that involve use of force. There are still going to be very dangerous, bad people in society that only the police can, can deal with. And so if we don't train officers, then we're going to have more and more of these episodes and public trust is going to deteriorate. I think here about the, the tragic episode that happened in, in Atlanta uh, a couple of days ago. Yeah. You know, a police officer running after someone who had disarmed, I believe, the other officer and, and had possession of their taser. Mm-hmm. Maybe that officer never was trained in you know, the kind of stress that would be involved in that situation and how to make logical, clear thoughts in a moment of extreme stress. You know, if there would have been additional training, if you train officers to perform under extreme stress and you train all of the possible scenarios that might take place in a use of force transaction, then the odds of officers performing better are are increased substantially. How do police win back that trust? Uh, Less so in America. That's a bigger job, I'm 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 I'm, I, I would say. Um, But but here in Canada, how how do they change this? How do they how do they turn this around? I think transparency is, is the big uh, component, and I think most police leaders and, and frankly, our political leaders across all, uh, all factions are doing, in my assessment anyways, a good job. Uh, we're talking about it. That's step one. 
uh, police chiefs are being transparent about, you know, these are the concerns we have. These we're not ruling out in, in my own city, uh, chief slowly has publicly stated he, he's not uh, ruling out any of these discussions around remodeling the police you know, taking the police out of certain functions that might not be considered core police functions. Police unions are also saying that, you know, things are on the table. They're willing to discuss it. They're willing to be transparent about their thoughts. So we've, we've achieved a level of transparency that really is unprecedented in a conversation around what the police should do, shouldn't do. Should we remodel? Should we make some reforms? Under the, the banner of, of defunding, which I think is a little bit uh, of a misnomer. I don't, I don't think anybody's calling for the abolition of police in, in society. That would be a complete disaster. So but, uh, but transparency is the big is the big mm-hmm. key, and, and I think we're achieving that in, in some respects. As you mentioned, defunding seems to be, uh, you know, certainly a key word right now. It, it, it's a buzzword right now. But uh, as you're talking about more training in certain areas, what would they take away? Where don't they? Where are they spending money that they don't need to be spending money? Well, I, I do a lot of work in major police services in both Canada and the United States. So, so police have gotten into all kinds of things. You know, police services have... Uh, kind of ironic with the COVID situation, but police officers for many, many years have had pandemic task force of, of a couple of officers. Police have done uh, sort of feel-good social work community programs of, you know, going into neighborhoods and, you know, trying to engage with the citizens. And quite often in some of these uh, troubled neighborhoods, these socioeconomically challenged neighborhoods, they're not that enthusiastic about about having the police come in as uh, as you know amateur social workers and trying to address issues of poverty and dysfunctional homes and child neglect and those kind of issues. So I think we're maybe moving in that defunding sort of conversation to thinking about are police officers the best people to do these social programming in the community, or, or should we look at another model? So that's different than what you said about training, because again, I'm, I'm I'm trying to decipher between what is supposed to be defunded and what some are asking more money to be put into. Sure. Because I'm again, gonna, because think... again, putting police into schools was one of those proactive things that you know was supposed to help all of this. Uh, you know, obviously, there's mixed opinion on it now. Uh, does that mean it didn't work? So we take them out of the schools, uh, but train them to better handle those in a mental health scenario, uh, because it seems like there's a tremendous amount of overlap here. And what people are asking to defund, other people are asking are saying, no, we need more of that. Sure. I think that's where the conversation gets confusing for, for most people. And, and myself, I have to admit, I'm reading a lot and from all different perspectives. Now, it is a little confusing even for me to try to understand what different people mean by different terminologies. But I, I don't think we conflate maybe a revisiting of what the police do in society, you know, maybe considering removing some of their non-core functions with reducing training. You know, if, if we took police officers out of schools, we wouldn't probably have to train them in how to do that function, that school resource function. But I think the training is really crucial in areas that cause significant controversy and, and upset amongst the public constituency. And those are use of force, diversity training, being sensitive to ethnic and cultural values in the community. I think we really need to work on upping that training. If you are a member in a police service right now, how do you think you're feeling? Uh, how, how do you think the police in, in general are feeling in Canada? 
Well, uh, I do a lot of work with uh, with police association uh, executives, presidents, and so on and so forth. I'm certainly not going to out any of them uh, on a radio program by name. But the, the general characterization from the frontline officers' representatives is that there's essentially, as they perceive it, a war on frontline policing, that uh, that people are very animated, people are upset, justifiably so, given some of the, the occurrences that we've seen, and that frontline officers are feeling very much under siege, not very supported. And, you know, the policing has, uh, in, in many contexts, has gone from a very honorable profession that people looked up to, uh, to sort of a, a profession that's got a bit of a taint uh, to it these days. And so officers are, are not feeling particularly comfortable about what's going on. Will transparency fix that? I think so. I think opening up about it and, you know, police chiefs, police uh, labor leaders saying, look, our officers are feeling under siege. They're not feeling very welcome. They're, you know, they feel like the public doesn't understand some of these dynamics and through understanding is, go- is going to come improvements. And so explaining to the public certain issues, uh, especially around use of force, that seems to be the current sort of um, spotlight, explaining how police use of force works, what officers are entitled to do in certain circumstances, what is an excessive use of force. And, you know, and that we're making a commitment to training our officers to do better than, than what they're equipped to do today. I think that that could rehabilitate some of the public trust. Dr. Gregory Brown has been with us, research adjunct professor and instructor, Department of Sociology and Anthropology, Department of Law and Legal Studies at Carleton University. Greg, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Anytime, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, We were talking earlier, Will Erskine, who produces this show back at the station. uh, The last time we left him, he had a Q-tip shoved up his nose, and we never finished the story. Uh, He went and uh, was tested for uh, COVID-19, and he did that earlier today. Are you there, Will? Yes, I am. So uh, when we last left you, uh, before the premier started to speak, uh, someone was about to shove a hockey stick down your nose. Yep, more or less. So uh, you, you went in, and, and first of all, let's, let's ask this. Why did you feel that you needed tested? Uh, because over the weekend, I was present at uh, one of the protests. I got some photos for Global and everything, um, and it was very socially distant. Uh, right. Every There was a lot more masks there than I've seen at some of the stores I've gone to for groceries. But uh, that, You felt the need. Yeah, I felt the need. I figured, you know what? I feel But fine. you're not feeling any symptoms or anything. No symptoms, nothing, but I remembered the, the abundance of caution that the Premier talks yeah. about. And I sure. decided, let's. Uh, I, I'll book an appointment. I just I went uh, online, found the number on the main page that the the city has set up, and uh, yeah, booked my spot. And they set me up for uh, earlier today. And I got in within so, fifteen minutes of it opening, actually. And how long did the whole? So you go in the la- the person's there in the hazmat suit. They get the uh, three foot long uh, 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 cotton swab, <laughs> and they and they into your nose. Does that hurt at all? Uh, it stings for, for me. It was like a, a couple seconds. That was it. Uh, I yeah. felt it in my eyeball, maybe. No. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> did it come out your ear? Uh, no, no, it didn't go in any, uh, mis- Now when they stick it in your nose, do they make you, when they stick it in your nose, do they put their fingers in your ear or your, your fingers in your ear? So it doesn't come out. <laughs> it's like, no. Okay. Okay. Before you start, sir, put your fingers in your ear. So it doesn't come out there. We're going to put some scotch tape over every other orifice. No, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Wouldn't it be embarrassing if it went up and then came back down the other nostril? <laughs> 
You got that you thing going on there. You get All a right, slide so, whistle effect. Uh, <laughs> a slide whistle. There you go. See, I don't so, think we're doing anything to encourage people to get these yeah, tests here. Yeah, we're probably not. So at the end of the day, how long How long did the whole process take from the, the time you got there? The whole process took about 10 minutes. Perfect. And the actual the actual in and out, that was a, like a couple of seconds tops. I barely felt anything. Uh, you know, the, the suspense is worse than the actual process. It was fine. So how long before you're in seclusion for two weeks? <laughs> <laughs> so so when now when do you when do you find out? Uh, I find out they say twenty four to forty eight hours actually, just because cool. we're on the city right. level, it's uh not got that much of a backlog. So, for all we know, this could be the last time we're speaking to you for a while. <laughs> we're trying to make people reassured, Scott. I you know, <laughs> Will was saying just before a couple of days ago, you know, I could use a holiday. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get that COVID-19. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get the COVID-19 two weeks right here. Well, good luck to you and let us know what happens. And, and good for you for going through all of that and, and sharing your story with us. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. All right, uh, let's move on to the uh, Prime Minister. Here's what he had to say earlier this morning about extending uh, the emergency payments, uh, the CERB payments, through the end of the summer. Over the past few months, Canadians have been able to count on the Canada Emergency Response Benefit to help them get through a tough time. And the reality is that even as we start to reopen, a lot of people still need this support to pay their bills while they look for work. That's why today I am announcing that we will be extending eligibility for the CERB by eight weeks. So if you've been getting the CERB and you still can't work because you're unable to find a job or it's just not possible, you will keep getting that $2,000 a month. All right, let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor at Group School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm just fine, thank you. And, and isn't this fortunate for Will that the Prime Minister is extending the period? If he has to uh, isolate at home for the next couple of weeks, he's going to have a payment. Oh, my goodness. So your thoughts on this. Uh, from a recent poll, a uh, Leger poll, I understand that uh, the majority of the Canadians are, of Canadians are behind this. Uh, your thoughts on extending this through the summer? Well, let me just go back to March, if I can. So March 15th is a critical day. That's kind of the day that we shut everything down. And at that time, the federal government announced the CERB, the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, and their thinking was that 16 weeks, 16 weeks should cover it. That takes us to roughly the first week of July. <clears throat> just to remind you where we are, we're right now we're in week 13 of those 16 weeks. The problem is, as you know, while Hamilton's going to be able to open this coming weekend, Toronto, Peel, and Windsor are not. And specifically Toronto, it is the biggest economic region in Canada. And if it's not yet opened, gosh, then 16 weeks might have been just a little optimistic. So he's giving it another eight weeks. Uh, that gets you a total of 24, just a little less than half a year, five and a half months. I'm not sure everyone's going to need all of that, but it's nice, it takes the worry away that you're going to run out of money. Just again on the CERB, at, at its peak, nearly 8 million Canadians were receiving this $500 a week benefit. But right now, we're down to 6.8 million. 1.2 million who were getting the CERB have dropped taking the CERB. And, and we are going in all the right directions, but we just need a little more time. Uh, opposition says uh, there are more choosing to stay home than are actually going to work. The, do, the two different uh, forms of aid here, one, of course, uh, the, the CERB, the other with uh, giving the employer 
uh, X number of dollars to go towards the wage in order to subsidize and, and then therefore keep them. Uh, is it valid that more are staying at home and, and, and taking the benefit as opposed to going to work and taking the benefit? Yeah, I'm, we're just not seeing a lot of data. Will there be individuals? Sure. You know, when you talk about a total of 6.8 million people, there's bound to be a few people who said, well, I'd rather stay home for another couple of weeks until it's safer. But on balance, we're not seeing people abusing this. couple of things on this, Scott. First, uh, the CERB is actually less than what you'd be paid on employment insurance. Employment insurance is 570 a week. This is 500 a week. Uh, also, uh, when this was started, the budget for the CERB, $35 billion. For the wage subsidy, the 75% wage subsidy, it was budgeted at $71 billion. At this point, the government's given out $43.5 billion on the CERB, so they're over budget on the CERB, and thus will become even more over budget as extended. But on the wage subsidy, so far only, only $13.5 billion of the 71 given. What that basically means is fewer businesses decided to keep people on the payroll. More of them said, well, let, let me just let you go out and you do the CERB thing. So, you know, I think the government, I don't blame the government for any of this. There was no blueprint for how people were going to respond. These were brand new programs facing a brand new situation. And basically what we've learned is most employers took the most expedient route, which was to lay people off and say, let the government sort you out. So will this other form, in that, and by that I mean helping out with payroll and such and keeping them employed, will that kick in in a different part of this recovery? Or the fact that we haven't seen much uptake on it now, probably we won't. I, you know, it's so hard to predict why they haven't so far. Now, the, the timeline for this does continue on for another two months until the end of August, two and a half months until the end of August. Will employers suddenly sign up for it now or next month or the month after? Don't know, and my my feeling when I talk to the business community is most of them, since they can't get an absolute definitive answer, like when do I get the money? Do I get the money today? Do I have to wait six months? Well, if I have to wait, then I I don't want to borrow money to fund the pay- payroll. I'm going to wait till I call people back. So I don't think the the CEWS is going to be fully subscribed or even close to fully subscribed. The CERB was the the better payment, and and then also I should note on that front. Mr. Trudeau has pointed out that we do know there is some um, uh, uh, fraud going on. People, either by accident or on purpose, applying for the CERB who should not be collecting it. And we are going to have to sort those out down the road. And and I don't want to shock you or anything like that. But if it's just 1%, if just 1% of these cases are fraudulent, of course, that will be $435 million. So it does add up. And that's why I think... Justin does want to go after people who uh, incorrectly or purposely tried to defraud the program. But on balance, it seems to have done very well. Uh, he was talking initially about getting the aid out the door, looking after right. it afterwards, even through taxation and such. Is, is, is taxation an easy way to get this back, or is it not that simple? Well, it is. And, of course, this is another thing that people, I'm not quite sure, realize as they've been getting their $500 a week on CERB, that it is a taxable benefit. So when you go to file your taxes in March of 2021, don't be surprised if people who are used to getting a return suddenly have to send the government some money because most of them have not been setting anything aside. Now, again, hopefully by then they've got a job. Hopefully by then they're in a much better solvent situation. I wouldn't even be surprised if there might be some extensions on filing taxes in 2021. But, you know, people, people tend to be very, very short-sighted during these things.
Uh, Friday, uh, as of Friday, we will see everybody move into stage two in Ontario, except as you mentioned, Toronto, Peel, and and Windsor. How important is that to the economy? Uh, how much more of a difference will the economy feel from stage one to stage two? Well, um, can I break that into two chunks? So having more of the GTA or the GTHA in stage two is great. You know, it doesn't take you very long to figure out if you take the population of Burlington and Oakville and Hamilton and Niagara, and then you go the other side to Oshawa, you know, you are talking about millions of people who were locked down who will now suddenly be able to do things like get a haircut or, or go to a restaurant in some form or go to a patio. So that's good news. Now, the problem is that when you still have Toronto locked down, you've got 4 million people or so still waiting to go. I have a friend who manages a, a restaurant in Toronto, and he, he went back last week to get ready, thinking they'd be open by now, and of course they've been delayed at least another week, and that's, that's concerning. So getting into stage two, it's all moving in the right direction, but I need to remind everybody that stage two is not the end. There's also this magical thing called stage three. Uh, to give you an example, stage three would be things like the Hamilton Tiger Cat Football Club. How does it have games? Can the airlines, Air Canada, go back? On that front today, we also learned that Canada is not opening the border with the United States on June mm. 21st. It's been delayed yet another month to July 21st. So people who are thinking, well, maybe I'll, I'll have some vacation, or maybe those nice Americans want to do some cross-border shopping, not going to happen for the July 1st weekend. We're still going to be on to ourselves during that time period. So, you know, these are all right steps. We used to talk about them as being green shoots. The grass is growing. Things are greening up. But we're not there yet. We've still got at least probably four weeks before we're into stage three. Are you surprised uh, with the extension of the border closure? Uh, we all know when this happened, what the situation is. And, and obviously, there, there's still some situations, some hot spots in the United States that many are concerned about. However, to think that, boy, and, and if you're at July 21st, why not to August and then Labor Day weekend? Right. This border could be closed throughout the summer. Did you ever think you'd see that happen? No, and and I, I would say to you, this has very little to do with the disease in Canada and everything to do with the disease in the United States. Yesterday yeah. was a really important day in COVID. The total active cases in Canada dropped below 30,000. Active cases, not new cases, active cases. Uh, probably in a week, it'll drop below 20,000. Now, we're nowhere near zero. Remember, New Zealand's at zero. Iceland is three away from being at zero. We're not at zero, but we're moving in the right direction. I wish I could say the same thing about the United States. The disease is certainly at a peak there, but I'm not sure it's coming down anywhere near as fast. And so if we are to remain COVID-free or if we are to have a chance of being COVID-free, we really, unfortunately, have to keep people away who might bring the disease back. And unfortunately, that's America. That's the biggest hot spot out there. And until they calm down, we might see the borders open with Europe well before we see the borders with the United States open. Hmm. Uh, is there pressure from the United States to open that border? You know, that's a very interesting question as well. It has to be mutually agreed upon, because I can close the border with the United States if I'm Canada, but does the United States want to do it in reciprocal? And Donald Trump being Donald Trump and facing an election and wanting good news, I kind of thought maybe he would push back, but I think at the moment he's got enough other things to fight going on in the United States right now, whether it is COVID itself, uh, some of the problems with reopening, Black Lives Matters, and, and the police issues. Um, I, I guess he just 
his people just said, okay, fine, we'll do it for another month. Uh, I, I'm not sure how much longer we'll have that, but I, I am a little surprised that they went with it. Uh, how does the fact that Canada wants the border closed to the United States, how does that play in the U.S.? Well, <laughs> I hate to say it to people, but they really don't pay any attention yeah, to us up here. Yeah. We're that quiet cousin who lives above them, and as long as we don't play our music too loud, they don't really notice us. <laughs> they didn't uh, even notice the door was closed. Probably not. And, and uh, for instance, I tend to visit California in August. Um, and I, I had a nice note from the place where I normally stay, the hotel, letting me know they were open and they're ready to take reservations when I wrote back and said, well, I'd love to come see you, but I can't, not only, of course, the planes, but I can't cross the border. They, what, what do you mean you can't cross the border? We're, we're friendly people. No, you, they, they just don't know. They're very insular onto themselves, so uh, they're not aware. All right, so what does this do for Canadian tourism? Because we all know the Canadian uh, tourism industry very short during the summer. They depend a lot on Americans, especially from international tourists and such. So is there enough Canadians on staycations to make up for this? On staycations or on Canadian vacations. And so we've said this several times before, and I'll say it again. This is a good year to discover our own country and and do our own thing. Uh, We now have travel between the provinces now pretty much open, with, again, the exception of Toronto. But you you can go to an awful lot of places. And so this is a year if if you've said, you know, I've never been to Newfoundland, or gosh, I've never been to, to Banff and Lake Louise, this is the year to explore. Uh, I mentioned Air Canada. They've sent me a nice note. Uh, they now have a program called Clean Care on how they're operating their planes, and including uh, shutting down the middle of the row so that people are at least somewhat socially distanced, the rules around masks and face coverings. So they are ready to go domestically, and this may be a year that Canadians are going to have to try to fill that void. You mentioned staycations. I would say the other thing that worries me a little bit as we reopen is all that hospitality sector Will we will we come out of hibernation and go to our restaurants, visit our wineries, uh, go to the farmers market? So this is the prime time for them this summer. Again, a little early yet to get data that I can base a decision one way or another. But I I think again, if we can take the proper steps, we can maybe salvage a good chunk of this summer. Uh, you were talking about airline industries and uh, and how they will cope moving forward. We, we've seen situations where, uh, you know, every other seat, the middle row open, what have you. Uh, does that stay in place? Uh, is that all well and good until the seat sells? How are they going to police this? How are they going to make sure that there isn't someone in that center seat? Well, m- more to the point, I mean, it's all nice in theory until you actually get the flight. I've been on planes where people had seats assigned, and then once they got on, do you mind if I just sit over there? Do you mind if I go here? Can I just switch up there? My wife is back here. And and many people, when they fly, view their seat assignment as a mere suggestion, not necessarily the <laughs> law. Um, and so I know we're going to have stories. I just know we're going to have stories as the airline industry starts up about some passenger. Maybe they'd had a couple of drinks before the flight to calm their nerves, and I'm not wearing any mask. I, I paid the same as you. We're going to have hiccups as we reopen, uh, <coughs> but it's got to happen. We've got to get back to some kind of normal. All right, Marvin Ryder has been with us, DeGroote School of Business, uh, McMaster University, talking about the CERB and how things are going to change in a post-COVID-19 world. Marvin, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. we Will do. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. You're kidding. Hang on.
We are uh, broadcasting live from my house. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.